This is 50 miles per hour. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. You're deeply nuts, you know that. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is on. Stay on or get off. If it drops below 50, stay on or get off. It blows up. Oh darn. What do you do? You have a hair trigger aimed at your head. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? I'm your host, Chris Tapley, and you're listening to an oral history of director Jan de Bont's 1994 summer blockbuster, Speed. Straight from the people who made it happen. Now, don't forget to fasten your seatbelts. Let's hit the road. Welcome back, folks, and settle in because it's going to be a party in here today. That was a nice breather with Nick Dissemlian last week, and I hope you enjoyed it, because I think it's a breather you'll need. As you can tell, this is a long episode today. We are very shortly going to jump into the deep end of production on speed, but before we get to all of that, let me first take a moment to thank everyone for all the love these last four months. I hope this crazy journey is hitting the mark for you, and if indeed it is, and if you're so inclined, do drop us a five-star review. They go a long way. And thanks for the emails as well. Hit me up anytime at Chris, that's Chris with a K, K K-R-I-S, at 50mphpodcast.com. Now, as we've plowed through the development of Speed, I think we've done a decent job of setting up the major players. We've got our director, we've got our stars, we've got our villain. But Speed is unusual in the action movie fray for a number of reasons, but chief among them is the fact that it's an ensemble movie. And I think it's high time we met that ensemble. So today, we're going to get to know the passengers of bus 2525. All of them. This particular element of the film actually represents the origin story of 50 miles per hour. Let me explain. Nine years ago, on the occasion of the film's 20th anniversary in 2014, I was writing for a site called hitfix.com, and I wanted to do something special for the movie. My first thought was a basic story with Jan de Bont and Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock looking back, but then I thought I would bite off a massive chunk and see if I could chew it. I decided to track down all of the actors who were on that bus and write an oral history of the film from their perspective. Of the 18 people on the bus, not including Keanu and Sandra, two had already passed away. One I was not able to connect with at the time, though I have since. It was an awesome story and got a lot of love and traction, and it stuck in the back of my mind as something I might revisit one day. And so here we are, almost a decade later, doing this every week. As I said about creating this podcast, I circled back to all of them again. So I now have multiple interviews with some of these folks, and you'll be hearing a mixture of them today. I just want to note, the two I never spoke with because they were no longer with us were Jim Mapp and Paula Montez. You will, however, hear about them from others today. Two others have passed away in the interim, Milton Kwan and Simone Gad. You will hear their voices today, and I'm happy for that. So, let's dig in and start with our fearless leader, Jan de Bont. The people on the bus, it's really important how it's so mixed of a group of people they were. They fitted so well, and I wanted to kind of sense that, you know, like there was a lot of variety in cultures that you have in L.A., I just didn't want it to be like going to a uh, uh, central casting and give me like uh, 15 generic bus yeah. passengers. 
I love that mixture of, of people because that to me is what LA is. It's, it's, it's a little bit of a cliche, a melting pot, but it is. It really is a melting pot. You're going to hear some glowing assessments of one Sandra Bullock today. Let's hear from her briefly, and remember, this is 10-year-old crappy cell phone audio, but I think it's important to include this. The reason that film worked was because of every face and actor you saw on that bus, because there was not one false casting note in those people. The reason that that film worked, I think, was because they genuinely reflected L.A., that you genuinely felt that these people would find each other on a bus, and they're level of acting, and they're the ones that I really feel sold the premise um, and made the movie so good. It could have been so ridiculous, the outcome, but instead it felt really real and gritty and fresh. And finally, before we start hearing from these folks, here is casting director Risa Brayman Garcia to really set up what the goal was here and what the challenges were in achieving it. You know, the idea was to have this population of people who became like this bus family, which I loved. And that's another reason why I enjoy working with Jan. We had the same thing in Twister. It's like we're creating this family of people who invest in each other and who the audience can invest in. And I mean, the people on the bus, not all of them were very, you know, sometimes people like Simone Gad, for example, she was so specific and so great to her role. Every actor on that bus had to bring real character and life to the story. So they had to be not only idiosyncratic and specific, you know, they have to be full-bodied humans um, with lots of stuff going on. And so we cast up in a couple of places, like putting someone like Alan Ruck. Thank God he was in it. He was great. He had a, you know, he brought a lot to it, but we needed actors. And I remember the studio was saying like, why do you need actors for this? Why don't you just have extras? And it was like a big fight to explain once you establish these people on this bus, and that bus is closed, you can't take people away or add people. They are there for the duration, which also spoke to a challenge that came from the studio because this is so interesting. And I think it speaks to where we are, how far we've come and the new challenges we have is that when they first saw the dailies of the people on the bus, I got the call that said, okay, there's a bunch of, there are a bunch of people on the bus who are not attractive and they're all different um, ethnicities and like we need to change the people out on the bus. They wanted more attractive people and without saying it, more white people. I said, has anybody ever taken a bus in Los Angeles? Jan was furious because not it wasn't the concept that we had. The concept we had was for reality. Like this should feel like real people on a bus, full of interesting characters, full of all different you know, uh, diversities, full of all different kinds of humans, you know, characters. That was the goal. And it was very, very carefully thought through. And then for the studio to want like less of that, not only was that like inaccurate, but it's, you, it, it's quite the opposite now. Now the mandate is our cast need to reflect our world and be more diverse. And that's the right thing to do. I think the ultimate reason why they gave up on it was because they'd already shot a couple of days and we couldn't go back. Like once they saw people on the bus, there was a big reaction, but then they kept shooting, you know, while the reaction was happening. So like two, three days are in the can. It's like, that would mean going back and shoot the cost of reshooting it all. They were grumpy and they said, and, and it was like, you know, they went back to the place of nobody's going to watch this movie anyway. So who cares? You know, like it was just such a strange thing. I was like, how are they saying this? 
at the end of the day, it was not only correct, but it was necessary. All right, and with that, let's meet them. We might as well start with the driver, right? The character of Sam was played by Hawthorne James, a striking figure you might have seen in films like The Five Heartbeats, Seven, and Heaven's Prisoners. I'll let him lead the way for everyone talking about the audition process, and again, you're about to meet 16 new people. I'm going to guide you through it as best as I can. Here is Hawthorne James. The audition was, was no script, no nothing. I came in, Jan DeBont was there, and one of the casting directors was there and had me sit in front of them, and they said, uh, uh, do an improv about uh, you finding out you're the bus driver and, and there's a bomb on your bus. <laughs> and so I just sat there and I did the, the improv of me being, you know, finding out there's a bomb on the bus and, you know, for maybe a minute. And that was it. And Yanni came over to me, and uh, and my hair was long, as like in the film, and it was down that day. And he just touched my hair, and he said, don't cut your hair. And I said, oh, okay. And that, that was the end of it. And then about a month went by, and I called my agent. I said, well, what's happening with this movie Speed? And she called him up, and they asked, he hadn't cut his hair yet, has he? And I told her no. And I was into that, and another month or so goes by, and same thing. He hadn't cut his hair, has he? Nope. And then I get the call, uh, they offered me a contract. And that's how I got into speed. <laughs> good hair and a good audition. I discovered while doing this, by the way, that some folks tend to call Jan, Yanni. Super cute. All right, we'll kind of make our way from the front of the bus all the way back. I'm sure the most recognizable face on that bus is Alan Ruck who recently received a much-deserved Emmy nomination for his work in HBO's Succession. Alan plays Stevens in the film, the tourist who finds himself getting more than he bargained for on this particular trip to Los Angeles. At the time, he was best known for his role as Cameron, opposite Matthew Broderick and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. But he's of course since gone on to star in lots of film and TV, including Jan's speed follow-up, Twister, and a show I used to love, Spin City. Here's Alan's perspective people say funny stuff to me like how do you pick your projects and i'm like usually it's when i go in and i audition and they say yeah we want you to do this part then then that's how i've picked my project it's not like people call up and say hi there's these seven movies we'd like you to consider and what would you like to do i mean i'm not i've never been at that level so a lot of people have kind of a skewed perception of how it really works for most actors there have been some things I've worked on that I've known from the beginning. This is this is crap, but I need a I need a job, and I'm ill-equipped to do anything else in this world. So you know, but uh, I didn't feel that way about speed. I didn't feel that way about speed. I thought it was a fun idea. Next up, the life of the party. Beth Grant is a very recognizable actor. She starred as Helen in the film, the woman who tries to get off the bus and gets blown away. You might have seen her in Rain Man, A Time to Kill, Donnie Darko, No Country for Old Men. I mean, go to her IMDb page and scope out her reel there. You'd be surprised how often she turns up. She's an Alabama girl, so as a Southern boy myself, I just love her. Here's Beth Grant. When I first heard about it, I wasn't even going to audition for it. I said, a bus? An action adventure about a bus. And Don Mancini, the guy that created Child's Play, Chucky, was a dear friend of mine. And he said, Beth, I'm telling you, this is going to be huge. 
and he believed from the very beginning, I guess he had read the script. He said, this is going to be huge. Get over there. <laughs> My audition was at Fox, and he said, get over there. Beth goes way back with the late director Joel Schumacher, by the way. She starred in Flatliners, which Jan DeBont also shot. I guess there's a Bill Hader pop star reference in there. And she would later star in A Time to Kill. Schumacher actually offered Beth a role in The Client as well, opposite Susan Sarandon, and she had to choose between that or Speed. And the dates conflicted. And I called and I said, can't you and Jan work this out? Y'all are friends. This is your DP. And I begged him and he said that they would try, but it didn't work out. I know I was going to be working with Anthony LaPaglia, and I was like, ooh, he was very hot at the time. (laughs) I hated giving that up. Now, also up front in the bus there, right behind Sam, and also someone who appeared in Flatliners, funnily enough, was Natsuko Ohama. Like a few of these folks, Natsuko's role, Miss Camino, was at one point a little bit bigger than what ended up on the screen. That's why you'll note some of these characters have actual names, and others are bus passenger number this and that. Now, like a few of the actors in Speed, Natsuko is a theatrical actor, and there's a fun connection to Keanu Reeves that I'll get to in a bit. But for now, here's Natsuko. I'm a terrible judge of material, especially in um, what works well or what would be popular or what's unusual. I I admit to that. Like, if you give me the material, I, I can do it. But in terms of judging projects, and you maybe you find that with other actors, we make weird choices because it's not really my thing. You know, I'm not like a producer, director, writer person. Um, so my friends were kind of excited by the idea. Like I would just sort of casually say, you know, this is saying, they, they would say, well, that sounds really fun. And I would go, okay, okay. I, I, I guess so. They'd never heard anything like that before. It was very unusual. So uh, it was like that, you know, I was sort of convinced out of other people's opinions, which I'm quite willing to take. You know, a lot of us actually had a theatrical background. You know, we came from the theater. And so that's the kind of person that you get that's really willing to work as an ensemble and, uh, you know, grateful to be in a film. And, you know, we're really good at what we do. So it's not, you know, we're working actors, uh, really seriously sort of, middle-class working actors that uh, just supported each other, honestly. Speaking of theatrical actors, let's get to Carlos Carrasco, who plays Ortiz in the film. He's the guy Jack Traven calls Gigantor out of the blue. As you'll find, Carlos actually has a mixture of emotions about this movie. Here he is. Thinking back about speed and my participation in it is is a complicated um, memory. It's also a bittersweet memory. Because when you're a character actor, um, you know, you work in the trenches for years and years and years, and um, you don't often get a shot at getting out of the trenches. And um, when Speed first came along, I read it, I found it amazingly exciting. I thought it was an awesome page turner. Um, You know, and I went to the auditions and so forth. I had my meetings, and then I got cast and cast and negotiated and everything on the basis of the first script. Put a pin in that for now. Let's move on to David Kriegel, who plays Terry. I don't even think you ever hear his name in the movie, but he's the young guy with the super 1994 haircut. Here's David. 
it just makes me chuckle every time that damn movie comes up. It is who the hell would have thought that when we were making this stupid movie on a bus that it would become a cultural icon. I don't know. I, I was pretty fortunate in my career to have some really unique experiences that transcended what most films do. The first movie I did was a movie called Alive. And, you know, it was a similar thing where it was 15 young guys just starting out literally trapped on a mountain for three months. You know, those guys are still my buddies. And that's not the experience that a lot of my friends have. And it's also those experiences that made it more okay for me when I decided to walk away from it because I'd had such great and unique experiences that I felt really fulfilled. And at that time it was, you know, the choices that I had to make uh, were, you know, easy to make because I didn't long for a lot in my career as an actor and speed's a big part of that. And then the final sort of named character was Ray played by Daniel Villarreal. This is the guy who pulls out the gun and tells them to stop the bus because he thinks Jack is there to arrest him. Here's Daniel. I got the script through my agent, and then I auditioned for it. And when I went in to read, uh, I was the guy with a video camera uh, going to USC. And then I ended up being, you know, the bad guy with the gun, you know. I, I remember, you know, going in uh, a couple of times to read, and then I got a call that... Uh, would I be interested in playing that other character? And I was like, sure. But I definitely did not have any kind of feelings about like changing characters or my lines or anything like that, you know? I was just glad to be a part of it. The USC student he auditioned for was actually Terry, by the way, and that aspect of the character would change dramatically. And the character of Ray would actually bubble up out of necessity. But I'll get to that in a minute as well. Let's move on to bus passenger number one played by Simone Gadd. This is the woman with the cat eyeglasses, very recognizable in the movie. I first spoke to Simone nine years ago, and then again in February of 2021. Simone passed away basically three weeks after that last interview. She was more than an actor. She was also an artist, and one of the most singular people I've ever met. Just a nice lady, very committed, and a pleasure to speak to. Here's Simone Gadd. Since I'm a very specific type as an actress, um, it's harder to get roles. I, I, I've always had a more difficult time with it and being a little different or a lot different, you know, and eccentric. It's been a blessing and a curse in a sense. That's why I've always had a dual career and I'm an exhibiting artist in museums and galleries. So my agent called me and told me I had an audition for Speed. And um, so I drove to 20th Century Fox and met Billy Hopkins, who was the original casting director. And he had me read a scene from the movie and do an improv as well. And then he gave me an adjustment. And during the reading and the improv, I started crying, and he really liked it. Then three weeks later, I got a call from my agent saying that I, that I got a call back and I had to go back. And the call back audition was for Yonda Bont and Mark Gordon and Risa Brayman Garcia. So I did an improv with all three of them. And Yonda Bont told me he liked my glasses, which was really ironic because 
I've always worn vintage glasses because I'm very nearsighted and I think, and I can't wear contacts. So I I came to this realization many years ago that if since I'm going to have to wear glasses, I may as well wear what I want and what I like and what suits me, which is cat eye glasses. Right on, Simone. Next up, Bus Passenger Number 2, played by Loretta Jean Crudup. This is the older black lady sort of in the middle of the bus with her husband, played by the late Jim Mapp. Loretta Jean is a trip. Big, beautiful personality, and rather than give you a quick soundbite, I think I'll just let her talk to you for a bit and tell you her story. So pull up a chair. I worked for the Department of Employment, and I had worked there for, uh, well, when I retired was 22 and a half years. And I got a call from my best friend uh, who passed away. Her name is Doris. She said, Loretta, I don't know what this is all about, but a friend of mine just called me looking for a black grandmother. And she said, I told her all about you because I am a very, as you can tell, outgoing, very talkative, a very funny, I'm a comedian and person. And so it was Nancy Chadez who was the most precious agent. She passed two years ago from cancer. So I called her and I said, my name is Loretta. She said, oh, she said, I heard so much about you. I got to meet you. I got to meet you. She said, I'm a casting. Now, casting of what? Casting of a line to catch fish or what? You know. So I have an audition for you, Loretta. Can you come? And so I didn't know that what auditions were. So I said, yeah. So she told me what they were for a bank and what to wear in the brain, so where to go. So we went there, and uh, and I was chosen. And everything that she sent me to in the beginning, bam, bam, the lottery I was chosen, the commercial bank I was chosen, it was <clears throat> a music video, Chris Rock, I was chosen. Uh, boy, I mean, I was hot. You know, I didn't even know what I was doing, Chris. <laughs> I just didn't think I would do any better justice setting her and her story up than that. Now, here is Loretta Jean recalling the audition for Speed. Jim, who played my husband, they said, Jim, can you wait an audition with Loretta Jean? And he said, yes. So there was about seven men sitting on a floor, and they had us up on like a shoe shine stand with two seats, and uh, we got up there with their direction. And he said, this is what I want you to do. That was the big boss. And he said, I want you to pretend that you're getting ready to die. And you're on your way to visit grandchildren. And this is your final, final time of hours together. And I want you to go ahead and talk. And we looked at each other. 
and I start talking. He was very quiet. I basically pushed him to talk, Jim. He was a very quiet person. Uh, and uh, I pushed everything out of him. And I said, you know, I love you. We've been married for so long. I, I'm just kind of ab-living. I don't even know if these are the word, Chris. But I said, you know, if this is the way for us to go to heaven, we love you. And then he pushed something out to me. I love you. And we're hugging. I'm hugging him. I'm touching and rubbing his face. And I'm doing this. I'm doing it. And pretty soon he's like, cut. <laughs> ah! And he said, he said, thank you. And that was it. And the next thing I knew, Nancy was calling me to let me know. <laughs> I mean, come on. She's awesome. Then there was the sort of gaggle of girlfriends at the very back of the bus. The first is Sherry Villanueva, and she was credited as bus passenger number three as opposed to additional bus passenger number such and such. There's actually a reason for that. As she'll explain later in the episode, she originally had a line of dialogue and that stipulated the contract she had. But that line was ultimately cut. Anyway, here is Sherry. And this is the one I wasn't able to connect with at the time when I wrote that 20th anniversary story. Thanks to Facebook, we finally connected. I was just out of school, and I went, and I first audition I ever got, I didn't know anything about it. They didn't send a side. They just said, it's going to be um, like a reading. We're just going to, they'll just tell us what we'll do when we get there. And when I got there, I could overhear them, like, auditioning for the elevator part and then uh when I went in there they they said we're going to do something different it was two of the producers and it was uh Maggie Murphy she was one of the 80s and they just had me (laughs) do an impromptu improv audition on the bus so I think they just wanted to see like my range or something because they gave me the scenario of a homeless woman on the bus and she stole my purse and then take it from there (laughs) that was it and then the lady from the agency she called me and she said I got it and then I needed to show up at 20th Century Fox the next day for um, wardrobe fitting (laughs) and I was like so surprised I was like oh my god I'm so happy next up we have Mary Lou Lim Mary Lou has gone on to become a costumer in the business which she'll discuss but here's her memory of landing the role of additional bus passenger number 8 in Speed Basically, you call in the hotline, um, and I just heard the uh, hotline asking for, you know, audition for a young girl. I think it was more they wanted the ethnicity, too, girls with ethnicity. So I went to the audition, and they were like, oh, you know, pretend that you were on a bus with your friends on your way to school and or friend's house or whatnot, and all of a sudden, you know, something's going on on the bus and just, you know, let out a couple of screams and blah, blah, blah. And so, <laughs> I was like, okay, this sounds really odd, but all right. And that was it, you know. And the very next day I get the phone call from that casting agency that had, had booked it. 
And I was excited about that and not really knowing that it was an actual full moon beat, you know, with Keanu Reeves. Rounding out that trio of girlfriends back there was Carmen Williams, additional bus passenger number four. Here's what she remembers of the audition. I think they were looking for some reactions, like being really scared, showing some fear, and a little, I don't know what I said, but I, I know I had some dialogue as well. It wasn't that I had to study for any lines. There was just some improvisation stuff I had to do. I think they were really looking for a personality. And through that audition, they hired me. I was just really flabbergasted. I was like, wow, I'm going to be on TV. You know, I'm someone at that time. I was new out here. I was from Missouri, Kansas City, Missouri, farms, cows, chickens, and Things like that. Totally not a city girl. Kind of like country girl. Growing up very sheltered, protective, didn't go to parties, didn't see anything. So here I am working on the movie. Okay, this next guy, I don't have a ton of material with him because our interview was short and sweet. But after all, when I interviewed him nine years ago, he was already a hundred years old. I don't know how many people realize that there was a tenured Disney animator on that bus. But artist Milton Kwan, who plays additional bus passenger number two, worked on cinema classics like Fantasia and Dumbo. Later in life, he would do extra work on stuff like Speed. He passed away in 2019 at the age of 105. And what can you say to that other than well done? Here's what Milton recalled of his Speed audition when we spoke. The thing I remember, too, is that um, a lot of people changed, you know, uh, Men like me uh, trying out for the part. We were always waiting in line at the casting place. I just turned 80 at that time, I think. We were all sitting there waiting our turn. And uh, then finally it came to my turn. And uh, and what they tell you to do is, uh, you know, there's a bus, uh, runaway bus or something, and they say, and then you're, you're, you're going to run up to the driver and say somebody's, uh, next to the bus and uh, threatening the passengers or something like that. And so uh, I uh, went up there and made up the word, hey, there's somebody out there, blah, blah, blah. And so uh, then uh, I was sketching the next day at uh, Santa Monica Airport. And then when I got home, I, I, was, I sketched practically every day in those days. And so and when I got home, my wife was waiting at the curb. And she said, you got the part. And I said, oh, yeah. So they had to go down to uh, uh, S-Screen, actually, SAG, and, and pay $1,200. So he had to become a union member to, in order to participate. Milton did a number of sketches and watercolors while he was waiting behind the scenes on speed, by the way. And I'll be sure to share them at our website. My appreciation to his daughter, Cheryl, for those. Moving on for now, we're in the home stretch. On introductions, anyway. Let's hear from Sonia Jackson, who played additional bus passenger number three. This was the businesswoman with a briefcase toward the middle of the bus. Sonia has a ton of credits. Just go look her up. Most recently, she had a couple appearances on the series Obi-Wan Kenobi. Here she is. He wanted individuals that were strong in improv so that he could u- utilize people in whatever way he needed to. 
and you wanted a lot of people to be able to move from one place to another in, in terms of the, the type of thought you were having or what, how you were feeling about something. And so mostly um, he wanted to be able to have actors on the bus that would be able to do almost anything at any point in time. So that was what I was hired for. Two more. Next up is Loida Ramos, additional bus passenger number six. Loida had worked on television shows like Cagney and Lacey and Knott's Landing, as well as movies like Three Amigos. She's a lot of fun. Here's what Loida recalls. I remember, you know, meeting with Jan, and he's like, I don't think I read for a particular role. He was like, I'm putting an eclectic group of people together, you know, and so I thought, well, I got a shot. I'm a minority, first of all, you know, so, you know, he was charming, and we just had a good chat, and he said, um, I don't have any lines for you, but I will, because I'm like, I don't want to do extra work. He's like, no, you know, it won't be that. So it was really funny because I kept waiting for my lines. I got on set and they weren't coming and they weren't coming. And then they came and then they got cut. <laughs> so it's just like, thanks for nothing, you know? So, But it was still great just as far as, you know, having a gig. I think the gig was, it was long. I mean, I remember like by the end, people were just like, I want off. And finally, we'll wrap it up with Julia Vera, additional bus passenger number seven. She also had a thing or two to say about lines, which will make a good segue to the next section. Here's Julia. It was um, a casting call, and you get sides. I had very little to say because I'm supposed to be unable to speak English. And so there was another gentleman, and is Carlos Carrasco. And so we had a couple of, of, of uh, scenes that we did, but they were taken out. Everything that I did was taken out. And they left me one word when he's talking about the big gap on the freeway. And he's saying, you know, everybody uh, hunkered down or whatever he says. And I go, give he said? Like, what is he saying? <laughs> everybody gets a kick out of that. If, if people for the longest time was looking for it, they said, give he said? <laughs> yeah, that's, I'm supposed to be a cleaning lady, you know, housekeeper or something like that. Okay, let's catch our breath. Take a sip of water, stretch. Like I said, you literally just met 16 new people. And again, Jim Mapp, who sat next to Loretta Jean, and Paula Montez, who sat in the very last seat of the bus, both passed away years ago. Now, you might have detected some feelings from some folks in there. You remember our episode about the big rewrite? It started with Paul Atanasio beefing up some of these roles and making other various changes that pissed everyone off, and then Joss Whedon came in and drastically overhauled his work. Well, I gather that the script everyone here read when they agreed to take on their roles was the Atanasio draft. So you can imagine their reaction when they sat down, with production imminent, to read through the shooting draft. Let's get into it. Here's David Kriegel. What's always interesting about that movie is the movie on screen that was such a big success was not at all the movie on paper that was initially pitched to us young up and coming actors who were all going to be, you know, in this action summer movie. You know, we were all we all had roles that that were integral to the plot line and the roles were basically crystallized into their most base form so that you had this bust filled with archetypical characters that people could relate to. Casting director Risa Brayman-Garcia. 
Now, he had big ideas for the people on the bus, and everybody was supposed to have a backstory, and they were supposed to do all these things. There was a lot of promises made, and I know that there were people who were frustrated or disappointed because I would get the calls from their agents or managers going. So they're sitting around for days and days and days on the bus like an extra. They're doing nothing. So this is a waste. And I would just say, they're not getting paid like an extra, and they're being shot, and they're featured, and I'm seeing it in the dailies. And so you're just going to have to trust that they are a part of the tapestry of this film in a very significant way, but it was hard for them. Simone Gedd. I was hired as a principal actress from the very beginning. I played a librarian, yeah. Several of us were hired as principal union actors from the very beginning. Yeah, we were supposed to have bigger roles, and I don't know what happened. Carlos Carrasco. Actually, I come from a history of, like, activism and um you know i i had i was i lived in new york for 15 years before i ever moved to los angeles so by the time i ever got to la i was already a middle-aged character actor and you know the opportunities um and the potential for breaking through to the higher levels are far more limited and then on top of that you toss the whole business about being an ethnic actor um so when i got that role i was just Beyond thrilled because it was a substantial role. It was a showcase role. It was a positive ethnic role model role. It was a hero role. I have a long history of playing bad guys and, uh, you know, and uh, beating up the old lady and getting the drugs across the border and stuff like that. And I just thought, wow, this is great. This is going to be fabulous. And Anna also holds the potential of elevating several careers to the next level. And that's the head that I went into that um, project with. And then uh, about a week and a half, or maybe even not even that long, uh, by about the third or, or fourth session that we got the cast together, you know, we, were, we all showed up and they said, hey, very exciting day today. Today we're going to read our new rewrites, and it's just thrilling. It's going to be very exciting. Here are the new scripts. And everybody, let's buckle down and read. And and so we did. <laughs> I remember sitting in that room and pages turning and pages turning and pages turning and looking around the table and just really feeling all of the air going out of the room, like a, a tire slowly, slowly leaking out all its air. Because what had started out as um, an ensemble piece um, disappeared. And all of our parts on the bus disappeared. Beth Grant. There was a shared uh, terror, I would say. <laughs> that, oh, my God, where are our parts? I wanted to quit. I was um, the hero in the, uh, the first draft. When I signed on, first of all, it never occurred to me that we would be shooting on a live freeway, ever. I thought they would use CGI. I mean, I was very naive, I guess, but that's what I thought. I thought we would shoot the studio, you know, big green screen stuff. So that was a shock. But anyway, we, it was the Friday before we started shooting on Tuesday. It was Labor Day weekend. And as far as I knew, we did not yet have Sandy's part. We didn't have our Anna yet. I had actually been rooting for a friend of mine uh, to get the part because it, it was written that she was a stand-up comedian and that she had had a show the night before 
and I had just gotten engaged and I went to her show and I had a little dog on the bus. Essentially, we were just raked out of the script and, um, you know, became like all these people in the back of the bus screaming and yelling. And um, for me personally, when I saw what was left, yes, there's that initial actor reaction of like, oh, how many lines do I have? <laughs> you know, but for me, it was a little deeper than that, because I think my part after the rewrite was down to about five lines, three of which I found offensive. Because this hero character had been sort of reverted to, you know, stereotype guy and, you know, and, and he's bad language again. And, and just it's like, you know, like another big lumbering Latino idiot. And I thought, well, good God, that's not what I was looking forward to doing. We probably made some mistakes in, okay, here's the stereotype guy. Um, the gang banger guy or the guy who's dangerous. I know they were frustrated with it, but I know that Ian was open to having conversations about it. But I, again, I knew this only by getting calls from their reps or, or from the actors, if I knew the actors, to say this is not okay. Regarding all of that, here's Hawthorne James providing some context about something that would actually reverberate through the rewrite. Originally, the bus driver had a heart attack when he found out the uh, had, a, had a bomb on the bus. And he died on the bus. Well, when I got the script, I told him, I said, no, I said, I don't want to do this. Matter of fact, I actually turned the script down twice. I turned the film down twice and they came back to me and they offered me more money and, and stuff like that. Immediately, what I thought of was Red Fox in Sanford and Son. Oh, Lord, here I am. I'm having a heart attack, you know. Here I come, Elizabeth. And that was something that bothered me because being the only black man on the bus with a major role, you got Sandra, who's heroic, and you have Keanu, who's heroic, and, and you know, and, and the Latino guy uh, who's been heroic. And here you have the black man who's scared to death and died. I said, nah, that ain't going to work for me. I can't do that. And they changed the script. They rewrote it so that the bus driver got shot. Well, that cost me two weeks worth of salary because if I had got had the heart attack, I would still be on, on the bus and I'd have had an extra two weeks of salary. But that doesn't matter to me. It's about the integrity of who I am as a black man and because film and television represents, goes around the world and people think they know who you are by film and television, I couldn't do it. So that did two notable things. Here's what it meant for Beth and her character. And I'm the one that gave him CPR. And then when the flatbed comes by to try to rescue him, I volunteer to be the first one off to sort of test the waters. That's how brave I am. So I go from a total hero, hero's death, to the whiny coward that you can't wait to see die. And here's what it meant for Carlos. I continue to dislike the moment where, uh, for no conceivable reason, Ortiz decides to tackle the um, the kid with the gun. I remember when I read that, because that was part of the rewrite, and, and I remember reading that and go, oh, no, that's like a stupid thing to do. I mean, that, that kind of demeans the whole character or, or lessens him, takes away from him, especially... When originally, you know, you had seen that it was a hero guy, that, you know, was thinking guy, smart. To me, literally, that is one of those 
you know, the classic actor-director conflict, you know, it's like, well, my character wouldn't do that. But, you know, I, I, I didn't have the real estate, you know, to, to, to face off with Jan and go, well, my character wouldn't do that. So you start to see how this was a domino effect and how it all led to the need for someone to have a gun on that bus. Well, there are fair feelings about that as well. And again, different interviews across different years, so bear with me on the audio. They did the rewrite. They brought Danny on board. Good for Danny. He got in a big hit movie, but they brought him on as the whole gangbanger from East L.A. You know, he stopped the boss, man. I'm going to shoot you, stop the boss. You know, it's like, yeah, okay, fine. You know, blame it on the Latinos. Um, you know, stuff like that. Getting back to those various backstory elements, here's Hawthorne James again. In the original script, it's like my character had a scene or two in the bus yard, which was all cut out. I mean, it was all background about who the major characters on the bus were. And yeah, you know, it, it, it'd been nice to have that, you know, but ultimately you realize it, it's not necessity. And back to David Kriegel. It was more, uh, probably more of an ensemble as the original script where everyone sort of came on board this bus and, you know, gradually they found out about their different talents or backgrounds and used them collectively to sort of solve this problem. And I think, you know, a, a movie gets too dissipated if there's too many things going on. And so they started kind of focusing it down more and more. I mean, I, I, what, I was 24 and getting paid to, you know, sit on a bus all day and be a part of a giant movie. And you have to be an idiot to complain about that shit. All I'm saying is when I first read this script, I'm going to give you a reference. You know a movie, have you ever seen a, a movie called Lifeboat? When, it, when the original script to me read like Lifeboat. And I thought, okay, wow, that's what we're going to do. We're going to do Lifeboat on a bus. And then that's not what we did. <laughs> and it was very distressing for everybody. Because uh, uh, everybody just sort of had, was confronted with this decision of like, oh, oh we got cast as as principals and now we're all extras um what, what does that mean what do you do i i spoke to my agent i said this is very upsetting i i don't know what to do i i um never mind the um, the reduction in, in in the role and everything but it's just kind of like now it's kind of reverted to the kind of stereotype that i was looking forward to not playing and uh i seriously seriously contemplated leaving the project my agent said, well, is there anybody that you can discuss this? Is there anybody you can voice these concerns? I said, who? I mean, I don't know anybody. I'm just, you know, the new guy signed on. I also was new to Los Angeles at that point. I'd only been here about two years or so. So I did the next best thing. I went in and I spoke to the director, Jan, uh, and, and I told him, on a, you know, I said, look, I'm, I'm upset. And I, and I don't really know if I want to spend a couple of months just on something that I've lost my belief in, in terms of what it portrays and what it shows for my people. And he was very sympathetic. And in that conversation, he said, look, all I can tell you is that we're going to be shooting with many, many cameras, multiple cameras. Um, and, and I give you my word that I will do everything that I can to fix it. And I said, well, I don't know you. But, you know, you strike me as a man of your word, and um, I guess I'm just going to have to take you up on that. When I wanted to quit, <laughs> he said, don't quit. I'm going to shoot this 
like a European film, and we're going to get reactions, facial, lots of close-ups, lots of reactions. It's going to be grounded in reality. All the cost, everything's going to be browns, dark greens, you know, muted colors, because we've got this big blue bus. All of the acting's going to be very real, and all the colors of the people on the bus and because he wanted that was his thing make it super real obviously Jan had a lot going on and he said please don't do this he said you'll see gonna get a lot of coverage he said there we just had too many heroes we needed a coward and he compared me to Richard Chamberlain in the towering inferno and I said okay okay because I just, I mean, I'm a person, I do what I say I'm going to do. You know, I'm not someone that, I've been fired, but I don't usually quit. <laughs> and here again is Jan de Bont. And I really told him that, listen, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of sitting on the bus, but, you know, it's very important and meaningful that you're there because they all, all the characters have a role to play. Reactions are as important as dialogue. The right expression can create such a different level of presence, a different level of danger and, and excitement. Action moves, there's always a danger of too much dialogue. And even Frank Neimer also was really good at that. And then the whole scene is five, six minutes, eight minutes, no dialogue at all. But there was a lot of story to see. Okay, let's branch out a bit. Here is Sherry Villanueva. See, I didn't know. I thought I got a part. And then... As a, it turned out, I didn't have part. And then it turned out I was featured extra on there. Then I, I can't remember who told us. One of the 80s said, well, you are going to get a part, but we just don't know when and where yet. So we were always kind of like on standby, like, okay. So I finally did get a part. And I remember Jan came up to me and he said, you know, I'm going to have you do a scene where you're crying right before you go over the gap. So he did. And I was so excited because it finally came. I was like wondering like what, when, and so, (laughs) and I was like, okay, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? And he said, I want you to say, I want to go home. He goes, I want you to cry. And I want you to say that you want to go home. So I did. And then when it did finally premiere, I was there and, um, uh, no part. <laughs> it got cut out. <laughs> and Mary Lou Lim. I think it was only like 175 a day. If that, maybe 100. It was pennies compared to what, because I know, I know now being a costumer, I know what background people are getting paid versus featured and versus a stunt guy. So I think as an actor, if once you get a line, they give you your own contract. So that's what happened with the two that got the lines. Sherry, I think, got the line, and Loretta. Let's hear from Julia Vera again. I didn't know enough to stand up for myself because that was my very first big movie. But when I had those speaking lines, I should have insisted on getting paid as a supporting actress. Well, it turns out that they put me only as a featured but no lines, like as if we had no lines. Even when, when my last word, I didn't know that they were going to leave that in the movie until I saw the movie. It said, ¿Qué dice? Then I thought, oh, wow, you know, I should have charged for that. I did say something to the script lady, and the script lady said, yes, I made a note of that. So they kind of just, to save a couple of dollars, they dismissed it. 
some of them wouldn't have done it if they knew what they were getting into. It's like the same as the Twister cats who sat around for months waiting for tornadoes in the Midwest. Like a lot of those people would not have done it, you know, had they known that. Although looking back, once the movie's successful, it's like, oh, no, no, no. I'm thrilled to be a part of it. And I'm thrilled that I actually got paid for it and that it's on my resume and that I'm part of the history of that, you know. But in the moment, people signed up for something they didn't really expect, I'm sure. And here is Sonia Jackson. To me, you just never know what's going to end up on the on the screen and what's not. I um, never thought it was going to be a bigger role. I had hoped, and they had said that that might happen, but no. You know, when when they say stuff and it's not on paper, I just have found that it's best sometimes to wait till it's on paper before you get attached to something. And listen, when I stand up on that bus and go, so, you know, if you're got a family and I don't. I mean, that's just stupid. But for some reason, it works and people remember it. You know, they, I think they, they found a way to cut to the shortest, almost sound bites of these stereotypes of humanity so that everyone could sort of be like, oh, I, I get that. I get that. And they moved on and you ate another handful of popcorn and, you know, a bus jumped across an opening in a freeway and a bad guy tried to blow us up and Keanu went on a skateboard. It 80 miles an hour. I mean, you know, what's not fun about that? When I did see the finished product, I thought, well, okay, because you know, one thing that we, we all quickly learned because there were so many cameras going all the time is that, you know, just to be in it in every single take, there's never a time when you're thinking, oh, no, the camera isn't on me, so I can relax, you know, so everybody was always on it, and which actually provided him with a lot, a lot of coverage to, to mix and match with. Um, you know, and also, you know, there was a little bit of freedom of improvisation, uh, during the shooting. So, you know, uh, every now and then one of the original lines snuck back in or whatever. I think everybody got their little moment in the sun. Everybody has that little special thing in there. Let's let the producer, Mark Gordon, have the final say on all of this backstory stuff. There was no reason to tell their story because we don't care. I mean, we care about them as a as a collective not as individuals and there's funny stuff i mean with a very few lines that group of actors as an ensemble were fucking amazing now i want to go back to beth grant before we dip out of this section of acrimony and discontent because she has this great story of being at that first read-through of the rewrite where not only was everyone confronted with their slashed parts but they also finally met the actress who would play annie and so we go in Friday and we've got this new script and I'd had great envy of Sandy because we went to the same university, East Carolina University. And I had been in Rain Man and I had done, you know, a lot of stage and this and that. And she comes along, you know, this extraordinarily beautiful dancer and she got on uh, her own sitcom. And around that time they did a alumni booklet and I had a nice, perfectly nice picture and a little article about me, but she got the center spread. You know, she got this thing. And so I was like, after all these years in the trenches and here she comes. And then this uh, friend of mine that I had done several press interviews with in North Carolina said, oh, have you met Sandra Bullock? And I said, no. And, you know, I don't know if I said it like that, but that's what I was thinking. 
And he said, oh, you're going to love her. You two would get along. Let me give you your phone number. Y'all got to get together. She thinks the world of you, you know. Well, I said, well, she doesn't know me, you know, but by reputation or whatever. But I had the chip on my shoulder because I was envious of her and jealous of her for getting all the attention. And I'm hoping my friend gets the part. So I'm sitting there. Jennifer Gray. That's who I was rooting for, Jennifer Gray. So we're sitting there and we're looking at the script. And I'm looking at the script. I said, where the hell's my part? And then we're waiting, we're waiting, and then in comes Sandra Bullock. <laughs> I go, oh, my God, it's that woman from East Carolina. And then she turns and she looks at me and she smiles, that gorgeous smile, and I fell in love on the spot. It's still uncanny to me. Very few people can win your heart that easily, especially when I had something on it, you know. Two things. I had my own jealousy, and then I also had been rooting for Jennifer. So, But she sat down. We started talking uh, about some teachers, professors that we had, and she did a great impersonation of one of our teachers. I was just in love. I was high as kite to meet her and to know that I'd be working with her. All right. I think the uh, suggestion box, as it were, is nice and packed, and everyone has been heard. But we have our roles. It's time to start building them a little bit through wardrobe and, in Hawthorne's case, set decoration. Funnily enough, a lot of this was informed by their own life and style. Here's Hawthorne. They came to me and they asked me about uh, personal pictures that I would have as a bus driver on my bus. So I gave them two pictures of my stepdaughters. So my stepdaughters are actually in the movie. You can see them above the visor. And there's a couple of times when they show them pretty good. And I gave him a picture of my dog, but we never get to see my dog. <laughs> yeah, I'm disappointed with that because I really wanted to see Big Bear in the movie. But my stepdaughters are there. And I always, matter of fact, uh, two weeks ago, I talked to one of my ass. You children actually know that you were in, the, in a big budget action movie, right? And she said, oh, yeah, they know. They, they see the, the pictures. They, they, the pictures of them as uh, uh, Carl and Alana. As, as kids, and they're on the visor of the bus. Back to Mary Lou Lim, who, remember, is a costumer in the business now. I had no interest in costumes. Then. I only had interest in fashion, though. I always wanted to be a fashion designer. So, therefore, I, I did dabble in that thought, but didn't really know much about costumes at that time. Um, other than the shows that I had done previous, and I see the costume department and whatnot, but never really thought about joining the union and um, working as a costumer or costume designer. But it was on the bus when I started to notice, you know, the whole continuity effort that we're, you know, we're wearing these clothes for a matter of two months, but in the movie, it all takes place in literally, you know, one day. So it's just the thought of like, oh my God, we're going to have to wear these costumes the whole entire movie, how boring, it's going to get stinky. And then then I get, oh, they have multiples. So they had at least about 10 multiples of the dress that I wore and the shorts. And the um, Chuck Taylors were something that when I went to the fitting, the costume designer asked, oh, are those, you know, do you like Chuck Taylors? Because I was wearing them in the fitting. And I'm like, yeah, I love it. She's like, oh, okay, we'll get you a couple of those for the show. Let's do that. So, you know, in essence, I added to my costume for the movie, you know, unknowingly. Here's Milton Kwan with a similar story. They, they looked at me and said, well, that looks like a good outfit for you to wear. I think I had a uh, golf hat with a brim 
and, and a jacket, and they say, that looks good, so wardrobe and duplicated that, uh, that outfit. I don't remember our read-through of the script before we started shooting, but I do know that they took Sandra and I out and taught us how to drive a bus. I want to say it was two days they actually took us out, and it was like in Santa Monica on the beach in the parking lot, beach parking lot, and they actually let us drive a bus. And then, of course, we never drove a bus. Neither one of us drove a bus, but they just wanted us to have the experience of sitting behind the wheel and actually driving a real bus. And that was fun. That's when I first met Sandra. At that point, she was just another actress, and she had the lead role in the movie. That's all I knew about her. She was not a known name of any type, but she was a really nice lady. She was very pretty, and we were just having fun. Let's hear again from Alan Ruck. They took us out for a little, just like, this is what it's going to feel like. We don't want anybody to be surprised. So they took us out on the on the 105, uh, and uh, so we're sitting near the back, and I was sitting there in Keanu, and uh, they said, okay, um, they told the stunt driver to... Um, basically give it some movement. So he did kind of like an avoidance S pattern really fast with a bus, you know, and it's like, wow, I've never, I've never felt that before, you know, and I looked over at Keanu and he said, yeah, squirrely. We get in buses to drive out to the freeway and I'm like, what, what are we doing? And we get out there and I think, oh, so they're going to shoot like one scene out there, you know, to get some exteriors or something. And then as we're talking, someone said, no, we're shooting. This is where we're shooting the whole movie. And I remember I flushed because of Mary, my baby. No, I, it never occurred to me. I just thought she'd be in my trailer. And uh, realizing that she wasn't going to be able to come. And I, I started crying. And I wasn't sobbing or anything. I just had tears in my eyes. And here it was. My part was gone. We're going to be shooting on a freeway. I'm going to be a minimum of six weeks. And why am I doing this movie? And whatever comfort Sandy gave me, whatever it was she said to me, I'll be there with you. I don't know what she said, but I thought, well, I've got her. I think Keanu looks great. She's going to be great. It'll be okay. Now, camaraderie is obviously key on a movie like this and an ensemble like this. Let me bring in Maggie Murphy on that point. Maggie was the second assistant director on the film. She worked closely with the first AD, David Sardi, who we'll meet next week. But I'm bringing her in here because she had a lot of contact and communication with the cast as David's second. Here's what she remembers of the group dynamic. I mean, there wasn't a jerk to be found on that bus. There wasn't anybody that you went, oh, yeah, that's pain in the ass. Because, you know, like, to be fair, you know, they're actors, and actors can be tricky. But I also studied to be an actor, so I have sympathy for the craft. and putting yourself out there and being on camera and being in front of people. And so I am pretty protective of them in terms of helping them get their job done and protect their privacy and and stuff. But sometimes they can be tricky. And I would say that nobody on that bus was a problem that I can remember. I would have remembered. Everybody seemed to gel on that very first day. If I remember correctly, everybody liked each other from the very get-go. So there was a camaraderie from the very first date. And if you don't like each other, it would just have been miserable. And that's one of the things I always thought about, how miserable it could have been if we had a, a one or two jackasses on the film. Casting director Risa Brayman-Garcia. 
And I think that was something that Mark and Jan wanted was good people who are going to have the stamina and the generosity to go through this because it's not going to be easy for anybody. There were no assholes. Sonia Jackson. There's a lot of downtime. So you had to like the people that you were around. And because it was so hot, so you're sitting waiting and they didn't necessarily take us back to base camp. So often we kind of just, you know, waited on the bus. We had fun with each other. You know, you might think that you might not like one person or someone's giving other people a hard time. Everybody had fun. You know, generally, there's always one person who's kind of like the office dick, you know, and we didn't have that. We didn't have any selfish personalities. We didn't have any of that, especially not from our two stars. It was a joy to go to work every day. I just want to jump in a second. You know, I've often said when you do something like this, dedicate this kind of time to excavating something you love, you're in danger of ruining it for yourself. What if it turned out all of these people, or some of them, whatever, were assholes? The movie might have been tainted for me. But as it turns out, and as you keep hearing, that wasn't the case. I guess for the purposes of a podcast, maybe you want conflict. Maybe you hope people are at each other's throats. I don't subscribe to that need, and I just want to say one of my favorite aspects of this entire journey is how much I like all of these people. So anyway... Let's keep digging here. My goal as we go is to kind of immerse ourselves in the day-to-day of speed from the perspective of these actors. I remember I was reading a series of Agatha Christie mysteries, and I spent a lot of time reading. I also spent a lot of time, you know, joking around with Sandy because we were stuck together. She was stuck with me, and I had a lot of fun with her between takes, and at 4 o'clock, we would always go get a little chocolate. We would kind of wait during the day, but then there would always be that four o'clock lag because we would shoot. I would leave my baby in the valley 5.30 in the morning, and it was about an hour drive. So we shot 6.30 to 6.30, but I was gone 5.30 to 7.30, which you can imagine a new mother killed me. Julia Vera. We were so beaten up towards the end of that eight weeks, honey. Eight weeks, sun up to sundown. Simone Gadd. Yeah, it was a very good group, very professional, very nice. And Daniel Villarreal, I've known Daniel since the 70s and 80s from an artist Latino group um, called Osco. And so I remember him from those early days. So it was a really fun surprise to work with him. Speaking of which, we haven't heard from Daniel in a minute. Here he is. There were long days, you know, at least 12-hour days. And, you know, we had to entertain ourselves. I did the crossword every day. And they let me take pictures. So I was taking pictures, uh, wandering off, you know, into different areas, taking photos. Because I'm, uh, I'm a photographer. So that was a lot of fun. You know, it's just like being able to sort of like make my own version of, you know, the movie. Spending time with Jan, you know, like talking about photography. He gave me some books, you know, when we were shooting. He gave me these incredible photography books, um, Japanese photographer, Bolivian photographer. And then that guy, the Brazilian guy that became really famous, uh, was his name Delgado. It was great. It was just like very stimulating ride. You would start a scene and the bus would take off down the highway. And by the time the yell cut, 
we'd be, you know, two miles away from base camp or something. And because movies are like this, they all have to get together and decide what to do next and whatever. And they'd forget about us. Well, I know they didn't forget about us, but they would leave us way out there on the bus, two miles away from base camp, while they decided what to do. And we're on this bus trying to amuse ourselves and everything. Alan Ruck. You know, Simone Gad speaks French. So I said, okay. I said, because Daniel Villarreal, you know, was supposed to pull a pistol and say, stop the bus, stop the bus. And so I said, okay, here's the trailer in French. And so what we did was we had him say his lines in English, but silently, just mouth the words. And then we had Simone in all the French, you know. I mean, just silly stuff like that. After eating our meals, we had breaks and and Keanu would make a special brown rice with all these seasonings for us. And I really, I loved it. I looked forward to it. And he would do it a lot. He'd bring his his brown rice maker and um, it was a real special treat. It was just delicious. So flavorful. It was a highlight for me. I know it's a little thing, but it was a wonderful highlight. David Kriegel. I had just come off another movie and did a TV show and was happy to be working and was super excited to get to play with all the camera gear because I was a pain in the ass 20-something-year-old who didn't realize I was overstepping my bound by pushing cinematographers aside so I could look through their camera. Lloyd Ramos. It was so freaking hot. They used to bring in these big tubes for air and put it through the window so that we could breathe and one day, all the girls took off their tops and sat. We're like, we can't fucking stand this. We're dying. We're going to protest by sitting in our bras. And they said, go ahead. And so we all have a picture of all of us, including Sandy, sitting there in our bra, you know, on the, on the freeway in, in August, like burning up. You know, it's hilarious. And it was hard because between shots, there we were. I mean, not a tree, not a shrub, not a plant <laughs> on a freeway in the baking hot sun. We shot in September, the hottest month of the year in California, you know, with really, you know, no shade except what, you know, obviously they got us umbrellas and stuff, but it was tough. Let's get Loretta Jean Crudup back in here. Oh, my God. You know, I see all these actors on TV, but to partake, to actually be there touching, hugging, talking, hey, Loretta Jean, hi. Hi, Sandra. You know, hi, Keanu. You know, hi, Loretta Jean. It was outstanding. I really couldn't even tell you about the feeling, inward feeling. It was dynamic to know, hey, I'm part of the industry now. They know my name. You know, that beautiful Long Beach area where the hotels are, and and then we would make a, a turnaround. And as we were coming back on the side of where the apartments were or buildings were, all of a sudden they're throwing eggs at us. Somebody that really didn't like us messing up with their traffic. And then there were scenes where I had to do a lot of crying because the director really liked my crying ability. So I had to do several takes over in different angles. And that was challenging, but, but it was fun, though. More on that point, here is Natsuko Ohama. I do remember getting very angry at the group of the bus because, you know, we were such a great team of friendly people, but I knew that on the day that I had to do these emotional shots, 
the crying that I needed to have some space and they don't have that responsibility. So when they were rolling, they were still kind of giggling and talking back there and there was sound going on. And I had to scream at the top of my voice, you know, shut the fuck up. I did. I just had to do that. And then everybody was because they realized they didn't have pressure on them the way that I did. And so can you imagine what would happen if we don't get that shot? You have to back up thousands of cars and everything has to reset. I mean, it's not it's not like on a set where you're in a living room where you could just go. It's a huge undertaking. Our very first shot and we've got 11 cameras shooting inside the bus, not to mention helicopter shots. You know, with 300 cars on a live freeway. <laughs> and we're doing the first shot, and it's Alan's line. And we're all like, this is impossible. This movie, you know, all of us are like, keyed up. And Alan went blank. It just didn't come out. First shot of the movie. And there wasn't a sound on that bus because we were all actors. We knew it could be us. We all wanted to hug him. There was nothing we could do. We just all, it was just dead quiet. While you hear the ADs, you know, on the walkies going, all right, turn them around, turn them around. And 300 cars have to turn around, you know, and come back. And helicopters have to go back. And I mean, but, but. The great thing about that happening right off is that it relaxed everybody. And Alan's such a trooper and has such a good sense of humor that, you know. And, of course, he's fabulous. I don't think he ever lost another single take during the whole movie. I mean, he's just such a strong actor. It was just one of those things. It could have been any of us. And it probably would have been any of us. Uh, All of us made mistakes. I remember once it was Sandy's close-up. And I have, as you might have noticed, angular features. And I have, like, a large chin and nose and I was sitting right next to her and uh my nose and chin were kind of creeping into her shot <laughs> now you talk about embarrassed I would much rather have lost my line than have yawn in his Dutch accent you know something about no your nose or your chin and your nose are in the shot you know <laughs> and then I they showed me and I was like oh my god I'm never so mortified it was horrifying horrifying so I had to turn 300 cars around because of my chin and my nose we also you know we're not unaware of the fact that there was always a camera on you you know so we all kind of sort of you know came to that conclusion you know what don't ever stop keep doing stuff you know even if the scene is not necessarily about you but there's going to be a camera on you so might as well go for it sort of like knowing where every camera is so you sense what the action is so you give Jan those looks that he likes so he always has something to cut away from you know it's like you're uh, you're being hunted, you know, like like there's all these hunters out there and, and it feels that way, like you're the prey of all these cameras. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you couldn't relax. You you had to be uh, on edge. And that's that's the feeling that the movie has, you know, the energy that it has. It always seemed to work out like this. We would go to lunch and they'd say, OK, guys, it's going to be like 15, 20 minutes. And then. I would go lay down in my trailer and it was an hour late. It was always an hour later, <laughs> you know, the, that 15 or 20 minutes always stretched into an hour when they had to rig whatever they had to rig. And so I got an, I, I, you know, I had a fun morning. I had lunch. 
I had a nap, and then I had a really good afternoon. It was a great job, and it was all in town. We used to joke among ourselves that after the first several couple of weeks, uh, we, the ensemble, came to the conclusion that we had a very easy job because we just had to show up each day and go, okay, what are we doing today? Are we screaming or are we sighing in relief? <laughs> because kind of worked out that that's sort of what we did every day. Oh, no. Oh, no. And then, oh, thank God. You know, and you do that every day for like two months and then you're done. I would say that in terms of traditional direction, you know, like you work with a director and you, you talk about moments and so forth and so on. Um, there really was very, very little of that. The only time that he did a comment on my performance, when I pulled Keanu out of the, the thing, uh, I improvised a line about his hairy cojones. You're not too bright, but you sure got some big hairy cojones. That wasn't the script. I kind of came out that way. So I remember that then, then Jan came to me and he said, well, you, you know, that, that was very interesting. That was okay, but uh, we're going to shoot it again. And, and this time, could you please say the line in the script? Yeah. So we did it again. And um, I don't even remember what the line was. Um, but then I was pleased that when the film came out, oh, there's the Harry Cojones line. <laughs> that was our actor and director moment. I like to imagine Jan didn't understand what that meant in the moment, and then later someone explained it to him and he decided it was kind of great. Anyway, here's Natsuko Ohama with more on Jan. I mean, he is kind of underestimated, and in those cramped quarters, it's not only the shots, but the way he could, he would just know how to do something and cramp himself into a corner with the camera, like just jammed up against this and and get a shot himself. I mean, he really was amazing. He's got such a photographer's eye. Let's face it, it's not like uh, the highway to the airport in Los Angeles is the Malfi Coast or, you know, the Pacific Heights or Palisades or something. It's, It's just raw highway and cement and airport. And the way he guided that and, and made that move and got this, it's really an underestimated piece of work, I think. Wild packs of dogs use the freeways as like their transport, you know? They move around the city like that. So on that freeway, they, uh, because it was still being built, there were so many dogs like that. So a, a couple of those dogs got rescued there. But then also when we were driving through the city, especially like in South Central, you know? We would um, have our base camp, and so I would wander around the neighborhood a little bit. So we would find dogs in, like, that shape, or one was chained. You know, I, I people, like, uh, ended up adopting them. I think Kriegel adopted one of those dogs. There were two of them. There's one that we were in downtown somewhere on a side street, and there was a dog just mangled and chained up on a fence, and we just took him, and a good friend of mine... Uh, was wanting the dog. He was this, he was a little Rasta dog with <laughs> full-on dreads and whatnot. And he ended up, uh, my friend was a pretty big producer and line producer, and he ended up being like this Hollywood set dog that just was on every Hollywood set there was. 
And then there was another time we, we would, between takes, we would sit out on this empty freeway before it got filled up with all the extras in their cars. And there was a pack of stray dogs. And I literally just sat there with my lunch for like 45 minutes till one of them got the courage to sort of walk over. And I gave him some of my sandwich and sat with him for a little while. And, you know, unfortunately for him, I decided to keep him because Sandy Bullock said, hey, if you're not going to keep that dog, I'll take him. I'd love to have a dog. So he could have been Sandy's dog, but he got stuck with me instead, unfortunately. The greatest takeaway that I saw it in making that film was the emerging stardom of Sandra Bullock. That was really her break in many ways. And we kind of felt it. Like you could tell, like she was going to break out and she was just the sweetest thing. Demolition Man, that movie came out a weekend that we were, we were working. And I told Sandra, your life is now going to change. You can't do a movie with Stallone and not have a life change. Little did I know, it wasn't that movie. It was the one we were shooting that would forever change her life. I can't tell you what it was like to have somebody burst on the scene that you just knew was going to be a superstar and had all the kindness and sweetness that she had. And Hawthorne and I both just loved it. We were like, you know, old seasoned, you know, character actors who had been around. And I remember once us sitting on the bus and watching her. We were somewhere in South Central and she was out on the street and she was giving candy to the local kids and and they had some music on and she's dancing with the kids and we're looking at her and Hawthorne said she has no idea what's getting ready to happen. <laughs> I remember us looking at her and knowing she was going to be a superstar. That it, She just had the light. You just come across it every once in a while. You know, I've worked with a lot of Brad Pitt. I think I was in his first movie, a thing called The Image with uh, Albert Finney and a bunch of them and they're just certain people that you come across that just have the light. It's just, you know, it's it's a job, and it's a hard job. It's not what people think it is. It's not like, oh, you get discovered and la-di-da. It is a huge job. You've got to run a corporation. You've got to build a company. You've got to have all these people working for you. You've got to choose material. You, I mean, it's a huge, very challenging, very difficult job. And there just are not a lot of people who can do it and sustain it. And we just knew she had the chops for it. I mean, she's smart. She had, she was, at the time, she was building her own cabinets. And she was remodeling her house and building the cabinets herself. And she had, you know, been trained at a, a Waldorf school. And she was uh, an egalitarian and kind and smart and self-reliant. So... Anyway, she wasn't just like this little auntie that got lucky and got a job. You know, she was who she is then, but it was, you know, before she became a megastar, right? And um, she's just full of shit. She's just full of it. I came back from lunch one day. I opened the door and I walked back down and I see that there's a pile of dog shit on my floor. And it's like, who let a fucking dog in my trailer? <laughs> So I, I I go in, and I'm like, what the hell is this? And I see it's actually not dog shit, but it's two bananas, one that's been left whole and one that's been cut into three pieces, and it has been sprayed with some sort of paint and has little things stuck in it, like little twigs and stuff, to give it texture, right? And I turn around, and Sandy is wetting her pants with laughter. I look down the way, and she's, like, crying so hard, you know? So I was like, all right, all right, all right, all right. You know, 
And um, she was in so many more scenes than I was. The next day, I came in with a hot glue gun. And uh, while she was at work, I went into her trailer and I glued down everything in her trailer. I glued down her, <laughs> I glued her boots to the floor. I glued her toothbrush to the counter. I glued her brassiere to the handle, the, the doorknob where she left it, you know. And um, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, you just remember it's like, wow, you know, somebody really cracked you up or somebody really got you. Keanu, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Both of them, great people. I love them both. They're completely different. Keanu is very private, very withdrawn. I decided he's just very shy. Um, and Sandy is Sandy Bullock. You know, she's Miss Bubbly, Miss Cheerleader, Miss Funny, Miss Let's Play Games, Let's Throw Spitballs at Each Other. And that went a long, long, long way to keeping things loose and happy and, and you know, amused and entertained uh, on this bus. And I wanted to not like her because just being a bitchy female at the time, I remember she had a role in this film that I had wanted. It was wrestling Ernest Hemingway and, and where she got cast as a Latina. And I was pissed because I was like, she's not Latina, you know. And I wanted to not like her because of that. And I, you know, despite that, I couldn't help myself. I, I just thought she was adorable, yeah. She just made us all welcome. No change as she's the same way now. She don't care who you are. She don't care what you look like, how big you are, how short you are. She's crazy. <laughs> she's totally crazy. She's so much fun. And she just, she make you laugh. And everybody loved her. She made us all feel that we were even with her. She, she's Sandra. She's Sandy. I don't care about a lot of people, you know, their careers and all that stuff. But, but her, because she is such a beautiful person, inside and out, I'm so glad that she, got, she is where she is now. I really, really am very happy for her. Because she deserves it, and she just doesn't change. She's still that nice, beautiful person inside and out. And I'm really happy for her. We were sort of like on the same level. You know, there wasn't like the big star and the, you know, the day player. It was just like a bunch of friends. And um, I had a really great time hanging out with Keanu. Keanu would call me Diablo, you know, because of my goatee. I would hang out in his dressing room once in a while, not all the time. He was learning how to play bass at the time, you know, because he was in that band, Dog Star. So we would listen to Fugazi. I was a photographer. Um, I started out when I was like 14. So by 16, I was taking pictures of bands like at, at concerts and stuff, you know. So I was, I was telling to like the punk scene. And so I turned him on to like the... Uh, Chicano punk rock bands, you know, I, I gave him some tapes. And so we would listen to music. And then he gave me a, a book by Andre Tarkovsky, um, Sculpting in Time. He's one of my favorite filmmakers and also Keanu's. He's one of the nicest people you ever want to meet. But he's not that outgoing guy. He's not the huggy feeling type of guy. And I think people misinterpret that. Because working 12, 16-hour days, 
you get to talk to people, you know, you get to learn things about people because there's a lot of downtown. So you talk to each other. And so we would be having conversations about all kinds of things, you know, whether it be politics or personal lives or whatever, but he wouldn't be necessarily a participant, but he would be standing outside the group listening and you could see him listening and taking it all in. It's very rare that he would actually say something. And, and, and volunteer or an opinion or something. That's rare, but you could see him. He was always there listening, you know, and no ego, no, nothing. He, he's just really one of the nicest guys in, in Hollywood, as far as I'm concerned. The first time we met him on set, he's shy, or he was anyway at the time. Uh, it was lunch, and he was standing in the corner eating. I looked over at Keanu, come over here and sit down. You don't need to be standing up there eating because, you know, he didn't know anybody and he didn't really want to intrude kind of thing. After that, he got really, when he knows you, he's really friendly. He had a lot of aspirations, you know, of doing the classics and everything. And in fact, I remember the whole time we were doing Speed, he had a rumpled up copy of Hamlet in his back pocket because he was working on it and studying it because indeed, a few months after Speed wrapped, Keanu went up to Toronto to do his Hamlet. And so he had a special connection with Natsuko. Um, and uh, it was just ironic that, you know, here we are in this bus, and now he's the star of this movie. And one of his Shakespeare instructors is on the bus, and she's, like, in, in a supporting role. Yeah, I knew Keanu when he was very, quite young. He came to a, a Shakespeare company that I was a part of, Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, Massachusetts, as a, a student. And um, I think he left to do River's Edge then. That's how young he was. And he's always loved language. You know, he, he played Hamlet. He grew up around the theater. And uh, so I had known him as a young guy. And always been sort of fond of him. He's very unusual. Well, now look at what's happened to Keanu. Keanu's become like a sage or something. He's ascended into this incredible place in, in uh, culture. Just to drop in here before this next comment, Natsuko, who teaches at the USC School of Drama, by the way, is an expert at something called the Linklater Method. It's built on a set of exercises that help open the throat and develop resonance and range and tonality in the voice. So here is Natsuko from an earlier interview, remembering Keanu as a student. He had a great, beautiful presence. He was very in the moment. He, he was very, very spontaneous. I think that the complications of language, uh, the, the instrument of his voice, which is what I would have worked on longer if we had the time, you know, to get more more flexibility and range in there, because it's not that... Uh, the kind of thing that he's asked to use a lot, or he wasn't at that time. You know, and that takes 20 years of work, really, to, to get a voice that's going to pick up all those thoughts and nuances. Well, one day, we were all just sitting there, and then everybody just started laughing, and Keanu mooned everybody. And I, I had my camera that day, and I grabbed it, but I missed it. I didn't get a picture of it. I wish I did. Um, but I was like, we were like screaming. We we're like, oh, my God. <laughs> And me and Mary Lou, Sonia, Lloyda, and Paula and Carmen, we were all in the back of the bus. And he would go back there and he would just go do one arm pull-ups. Just, you know, on the bar that you hold on to in the bus. 
he would just go back there. <laughs> he, he would just do one-arm pull-ups, and we'd just, like, look at each other like, wow. When I've heard him interviewed, he doesn't seem so excited about having done that movie. And I don't understand why. Because that movie took him to a whole different place. And that, I'm curious about that, why he doesn't feel that way. And, he, and for me, he did such a good job in that film. With that in mind, you know, all these folks who thought they were making some ridiculous movie and half of them were annoyed at what their roles had been reduced to, what did they think once they saw it all put together? We'll stay with Hawthorne to start. Actually, when I read the script, I said, this is kind of corny. I don't know if I want to do this or not. And I'm so glad that I decided to do it. And, it, it, and it's like all movies. As long as it's logical to me, I don't care. As long as it makes sense, I don't care. But, but really, honestly, sitting in that movie theater watching this movie, I was totally blown away. I didn't know you could put 12 cameras on the bus and not have them interfere with each other. It was fascinating. It was a learning experience for me in my career as I've gone on and started to direct more stuff. I, I watched him, at, and his eye is incredible. And the way that the thought process that he had gone through the pre-production and knew what he wanted and knew how to get it, it really was a learning experience for me because I didn't know what we were doing. And uh, it was all in Jan's head. And to have been at the premiere, I sat back and I watched that movie and I said, that's what we were doing? Beth Grant. I liked all that about the movie, but I did not like me. I did not like my character. I was glad she died. I mean, it's terrible. And I've, I, whenever people come up and say, oh, poor Helen, I was so sad when she died. And I thought, she, all she did was care about herself and why. What about the rest of us? What about the rest of us? I mean, I'll just interject and say this. Helen is sort of a surrogate for the audience, and Jan was totally right to have a coward, as Beth says, on the bus. I think just about anyone would try to jump over to that flatbed. So I don't see Helen as a coward so much as, here comes that word again, real. Well, yeah, and not everybody gets their own death song, so uh, you can take care of that for me. At my funeral, you can have them play Helen's death. (laughs) The track is actually called Helen Dies, Beth. Sorry to be that guy. Anyway, here's Lloyd Ramos. I have to be honest. I totally thought this film was going to tank. You know, I, I totally did it like a throwaway job. Like, it's cool, you know, uh, it's a paycheck. But this premise is ridiculous. <laughs> I totally, like, did not think it was going to fly at all. You know, the whole premise about, you know, it's going to blow up if you slow down. I was just like, it's ludicrous. And when it was like the breakaway summer hit, I nearly shit. I was like, you are kidding me. <laughs> I, think, I did not see that coming. And it, it just illuminated to me how in this industry you really cannot tell. You know, I've been in films that we would, we thought were going to be like blockbusters. You know, when we did Three Amigos, I thought that was going to be the runaway. Like, And it, it really didn't do well at all in the theaters. It, it became a little cult classic in video. But not in, you know, not uh, in the first uh, showing. So, yeah, it was a a lesson learned, (laughs) definitely. Simone Gadd. I really loved it. I thought it was really creative. And Jan de Bont, I mean, he worked with Paul Verhoeven in Amsterdam, so he has that background and, you know, very skilled. And he did bring a European sensibility to speed, which is really wonderful. 
you know, it set a precedent, and it's a classic. Here's Mary Lou Lim, who says people tend to get excited when she casually mentions she was one of the bus passengers in Speed. I work with Will Ferrell. You know, I've worked with him for the last 17 years. So he knows that I've done it. So, of course, he makes fun of me all the time. I was on a movie with him, Daddy's Home 2, and the director um, needed a nurse. And so the, the director had asked me to do it. And so I was like, oh, God, okay, whatever. So it was just like a small walk-on, you know, almost like a background situation role. Anyways, at first I was like, no, I don't know if I want to do it. And Will looks at me. He's like, come on, Mary Lou, because you were on speed. <laughs> and the director, Sean Anders, just looks at him and he's like, what? And he's like, that's amazing. <laughs> Carmen Williams. I thought it was an amazing movie. You know, I watched that movie over and over again with family members, with friends. I didn't just watch it because I was in it. I just thought the overall, everything about speed, the um, action, the cast, everything was just on point. It's just one of those movies where it captured your interest from the first 10 minutes. You know, you just fell right into it. I'm like, wow, I was a part of this movie. And it's a movie that a lot of people, it's their favorite. You know, a lot of people like speed. Yeah. Yeah, you can say that again. Anyway, Sonia Jackson. I loved it. I thought, wow. A friend of mine said it. She said, when I came out of the theater, I had to walk around the block so I could calm down. And, you know, and, I, and, I, and I said, yeah. Because when you finished with that movie, there was so much excitement that you had to, like, dispel it. Back to Daniel Villarreal. It's quite a movie, you know. It's put together nicely, you know. It's very well done. How would I describe it? It's like, it's modern, you know, it still holds up. It's like, it doesn't get old. After we wrapped where I lived, uh, like over in uh, Pico Robertson area, the, the blue bus, you know, that line uh, turned around on my block, you know? So I would see that bus every day and I'd be like, oh my God, I'm, I'm tired. <laughs> tired of seeing those buses, you know? It was kind of funny that I like, the bus was calling to me all the time, you know? I also ran into Sandy again uh, over by Nate and Al, and I hear somebody screaming, stop the bus, stop the bus. And, you know, I was getting that at the time, and I'm like, oh, my God. And I turn around, and it was Sandy. (laughs) By the way, when we did these particular interviews back in 2021, Daniel and Carlos had actually just attended a pandemic drive-in screening of Speed at the Greek Theater here in L.A. I was in American Me. And Carlos Carrasco is in Blood In, Blood Out, which is basically the same movie, you know, the same writer. So I see Carlos at a lot of uh, conventions, you know, like where we do autographs. So I stayed in touch with him. He sent me a message saying that there was a screening and, you know, and I said, oh, I want to go. And there was like a little VIP thing where, you know, I put on my hazard light. So they took me all the way to the front. So I got all the way to the front and then uh, right by the the screen, you know, and then... uh, they were just about to introduce the film, and then they they said uh, that Carlos and I were there, and then all the cars started honking, you know. <laughs> and then as, as the movie started rolling, they were honking for the, like all the fucking credits, you know, like. <laughs> and then whenever something really fun would happen, which is most of the time they were honking, so it was just like a honkaton, you know. <laughs> It, it, you know, it, it was bittersweet because uh, where the Greek theater is, that's where Simone lived. 
So, you know, I could, I could have been like picking her up and taking her there, you know? So, you know, when I was there, I was thinking, oh, I'm, I hope she's like hovering, you know? Carlos Carrasco. Honestly, after uh, all this time, and like I said, sitting through it in its, you know, complete form, you know, on a big screen again and so forth. And I, I, I just really had to go, well, you know what, this, it, it's okay. You know, it was a piece of entertainment as a particular artifact of its time, even with regards to filmmaking and techniques and stuff. It, it is, it, it's a worthy piece. It does deserve its place. David Kriegel. It comes up pretty frequently because there's almost never a day that Speed is not on some channel in some format. I also have four kids who are range from grown to 11. And so as their friends and their friends' families discover it, because they put on whatever FX or whatever channel and it speed popped up and they left it on in the background. And then all of a sudden they see their friend's dad on the bus. They're like, what? Cause I don't really talk about that stuff much to people unless they already know about it. So it regularly throughout the year that someone will mention it, it'll come up, it'll pop on TV. And yeah, I mean, I guess it's, you know, I mean, it's fun. It's nice to reminisce. It brings up some happy memories and good, Good stuff. My kids think I'm a little bit cooler than I am, so that's fun. It is a part of our culture in a weird way. The movie opened, and it was this enormous smash success. And it did propel a certain number of careers to the next level. And it left a certain number of other careers, you know, in the bleachers waving goodbye. And um, I thought that was a shame because I thought there were some good actors there. I'm not an angry old bitter troll who never had a rest of a career and stuff like that, you know, because curses, curses to anything to do with speed. That's not the case at all. It's just kind of like, oh, that's too bad that that happened because I'll tell you, I, uh, I've been in this business a long time and I've been in, I don't know, maybe close to 60 films or something like that. And, and, and by saying that, I just say, and most of them did nothing, you know, and, and if there's one thing I've learned in this business is that there are so many disparate elements that have to line up for something to really be a success. Uh, there are so many things that can go wrong down the road, everything from bad uh, marketing to whatever. So those opportunities for something to really break through and take you with it are few and far between. And so it's just that's kind of like, ah, oh, gee whiz. I think that for some of us, that was the one. And, ah, well, we didn't get on the bus. Uh, when it was going to come out, a friend of mine was an agent at CAA, and I was with a small agency and just sort of, I was kind of climbing and doing, and my friend called me, he goes, wow, this movie's testing through the roof. It's going to be a big deal. I was like, wow, that's super cool. And it was right about Super Bowl time, and I had Super Bowl tickets, and I wasn't going to go because I needed the money for whatever. And so the two things were coinciding, and I get a call one day from CAA, and I think, wow, I finally arrived. CAA wants me. I'm going to be hitting the big time, blah, blah, blah. So I call him back, and the agent's uh, assistant gets on the phone and she's like, yeah, I understand you have Super Bowl tickets for sale. We were interested in buying them. I was just crushed. I was like, 
you know, like I, I have no illusion about what became of that for me, but you can't be an actor without an ego. So that was crushing. But I mean, I sound like a sappy asshole, but it's all super fond memories. I even bought a car after I bought, I bought my first brand new car in 1994, Nissan Altima, brand new. There was many blessings that came out of that because I made enough money and that money came at the time that I needed it. And I overcame my fear because I was kind of, <laughs> I was kind of afraid of driving on the freeway back then. I drove the streets, but that's why I was happy when we were carpooling because I didn't have to drive the freeway by myself. But I kind of overcame my fear because we had spent so many days on that freeway doing semi-stunt in a fast bus, going across some wood boards, being transported to the other side. So it was exciting. You couldn't even be fearful anymore. So it kind of broke me because I was fearful of being on the freeway. And then after speed. You know, here I am in the fast lane. I never drove in the fast lane. I still have my little bus set um, on the last day of filming. Sandra gave everybody a gift, and she gave me, Marilou, and Carmen a little uh, necklace with the little bus on it. I used to hang out with Carmen and uh, Mary Lou. I'd go to their house, and actually, Paula, like, she had that little party and stuff. And then um, I kept in touch with Loretta Jean, and I don't know how soon after it was I think it was a couple of years um I went and I picked her up and we went and had lunch and we caught up and I ended up getting pregnant right after filming so when I went to the premiere I was six months pregnant and so I really wanted Loretta to meet my son because she was so sweet I would sit and talk to her a lot on the set and then I would write her letters and then I fell off and then I hadn't wrote a letter to her in a long time. I'd like to add two things to that. First of all, Sherry's son, Vincent, was actually born on Keanu's birthday. Go figure. The second is, I'm happy to say, she and Loretta Jean have reconnected after I put them back in touch. Let's go back to Mary Lou, who actually crossed paths with Keanu again down the line as a costumer for Bill and Ted Face the Music. I um, helped prep the show with um, Jen Starzik, who's their costume designer. Um, when we were in L.A., we actually had fittings with Keanu um, and Alex um, and the director. So fitting took like three hours because this is the first time they had actually seen each other in, you know, for a while in this working capacity. So, of course, they were like really excited about it. And so we did the fitting and I was like, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to see maybe perhaps he recognized me. But no, you know, he's in his headspace and we're all in our headspace of, you know, the sitting, blah, blah, blah. So, and then, so once three hours are done, whatever, we're helping them get out of the costume. And, and so there's, you know, we go into a closet because I'm kind of helping him put things away. So I say, hey, you know, just a funny story I just want to share with you. I was on speed with you. And he just looks at me and he kind of quirks his head and he's like, oh, yeah. You know, in the Keanu way. <laughs> and I uh, I was like, yeah, yeah, I was, I was on the bus with you. And he's like, oh, my God, that's insane. You know, God, wasn't that so much fun? And I was like, yeah, it really was, you know. I'm like, it was it was pretty phenomenal. It, it, it has a lot of memories for me. So he's like, yeah, he's like, who would have known, you know. 
A few of these folks have mostly left acting behind. After her son was born, Sherry actually became a bartender, though funnily enough, she recently told me she's been going back out for background work lately. David and his wife own a children's dance company in Studio City called Creation Station. And Loretta Jean has written a couple of books. She also writes letters to inmates and is just a wonderful person. Let's start with Sherry. Sonia Jackson, she said, oh, well, a good way to get experience is to like get involved in plays and with community theater and things like that. And so I went with her. Um, I think it was like the YMCA or it was some weird place where they would do um, group readings. Different actors would get together in Hollywood. And so I went with her. I picked her up and we went to go do that. And then I didn't pursue acting after that and just you know, a single mom raising my kid. And actually, I, I tried for like probably a year. I tried. I ended up standing in for Natalie Portman on Heat. And that was a good experience. And they did some filming over there off of aviation as well. So that was cool. My wife and I started our own business. We teach about 600 kids a week to love dance and to be better little kids through art and entertainment. And I get to spend time with my own kids watching them grow up and I'm pretty happy. and I mean, I miss acting sometimes because I love acting, but the business of the entertainment just takes so much of your life that I just couldn't do that anymore. A little hindsight um, and a little age on me, and I, I see it for what it is, which is just a, a fortunate experience. And I mean, actors spend their entire lives waiting to have opportunities like that. I actually have to hop in here for an update. As I was editing this episode, I exchanged an email with David to catch up, and I guess the call was too strong. He told me that with his kids pretty well grown now, he's decided to get back to acting. He did a couple of plays, and now he's pondering whether he wants to get back to auditioning or just enjoy the carefree creativity. Maybe we'll see him on the big screen again soon. Here's Loretta Jean. I couldn't even tell you. You know, I really almost in tears now to know that was my first movie. It was thousands of people, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people all over the world that was going to see me, not knowing who I was, uh, unknown at 59 years of age. Little old, my mother crewed up in church and my kids. I'm a Sunday school teacher. Mother Cuda, I saw you on Keenan and Cal. Mother Cuda, I saw you on Family Matters. Mother Cuda, I saw you on Fresh Fan. Mother Cuda, I saw you. This is what it's all about. It doesn't make me big, but I'm still being seen. But I'm still doing the job that I love. I'm still Loretta Jean. I'm still... Mother crewed up. And we'll close today where we started, with the driver of bus 2525, Hawthorne James. Everything I've ever done, it's been different experiences and it's been a lot of fun. It's been such a blessing to be able to do what I do. And to be able to be in films like Speed and Seven and the Five Heartbeats. And the first Union movie I did was Color Purple. Even the first non-Union movie I did was Rudy Ray Moore. That was an experience unto itself. You know, I've just been so blessed to be able to work and, and have the fun and, and working with the great people that I've worked with. And I've worked with them in a heartbeat. I can't say that for everybody I've ever worked with, but for those people on that bus, in a heartbeat. Next week on 50 Miles Per Hour. 
We're ready to start production on speed, but before we get to set, what is the set? This movie is a little bit like a, a city opera. Some cities are wherever you go, they're all the same. And if you go to LA, every area is different. The beauty of speed is that it's gonna take place in the city of gridlock, in the city of freeways that move really slow. And that alone makes it absolutely delectable. I'll take you on a guided tour of the many locations of the film and bring in new voices like unit production manager Ian Bryce. It was ridiculously complicated. If you've ever built a house or put an addition onto your house, you know what it's like just trying to coordinate the subcontractors. Well, imagine magnifying that by, you know, quite a lot. Not to mention a very special guest who was there 30 years ago buttoning up permit after permit across the city. I know that for that particular location, that whole area was completely cleared out. Like they asked the neighbors to leave when they did the explosion. All of that and more next week right here on 50 Miles Per Hour. Thanks so much for listening. 50 Miles Per Hour is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Chris Tapley. You can find us on Twitter at 50MPHPod. I'm at Chris Tapley, that's Chris with a K. You can also catch every episode and more at our website, 50mphpodcast.com. If you dug the show, please like and subscribe and do all the things. We'll see you next time.